Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and my guest today is Sonny Stalter Pace, whose fascinating new book is titled Imitation Artist, Gertrude Hoffman's Life in Vaudeville and Dance. And I'm happy to say the book covers her significant life on Broadway as well. As you will hear, Gertrude Hoffman is another of those dynamic women who played key roles in the invention of the Broadway musical, but unfortunately have mostly fallen out of the history books and are nearly forgotten today. Not only was she a scandalous and transgressive Broadway dancing star, she also was a producer, writer, director, and the first woman to choreograph a Broadway show, or at least the first to be credited for doing so. And her world-famous troupe of Gertrude Hoffman girls established a template for Broadway dance ensembles that is still very much with us today. Beyond Broadway, her influence and innovations extend into the worlds of vaudeville, ballet, nightclubs, and modern dance. Sonny Stalter-Pace is an Associate Professor of American Literature at Auburn University, and it is my great pleasure to join with her to give some long-overdue recognition to this important figure in the development of 20th century show business. Here we go. Welcome, Sonny Stalter-Pace, to Broadway Nation. It's so wonderful today to talk to you about Gertrude Hoffman. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Gertrude Hoffman is a name that will be unknown to most people listening to this podcast, but by the end of this, I think they will understand what an important and influential figure she was. And of course, one of the missions of this podcast is to shine a light on the women who were at the center and part of the invention of the Broadway musical. I've covered Gertrude Hoffman very briefly in a previous podcast, but I'm so happy to have had this chance to read your book and delve so deeply into her life, which 90% of it I knew nothing about and was learning for the first time, and to be able to talk to you who've immersed yourself in her world. Thank you. I think she is a super fascinating figure, and I'm so happy to share more about her life. So how did you come to write a book about Gertrude Hoffman? What was it about her that you felt the world needed to know? Well, I didn't know who Gertrude Hoffman was at first. I'm a professor in an English department. I tend to teach more literature than drama. And my first book was about New York City and literature about the modernist subway. When I was looking through digital collections at the New York Public Library, I saw a theater program that had an act that was called a subway tango. And that was very intriguing to me. So I looked at it and saw, oh, it's this woman, Gertrude Hoffman. It's a vaudeville act. And she has a tango at the top of a subway station. And then there's an act where a bunch of people do a two-step onto the subway car. So I thought, who is this? I've never heard of her. And then a little bit more research led me to find out that she was the first person to perform a lot 
lot of really important dances by the Ballet Russe in America that she, in fact, performed them before the actual Ballet Russe came to the United States. That completely blew my mind. I thought, we should know about this person. This is a person I need to find out more about. And I found that she had a pretty sizable archive at Wake Forest, along with a lot of material at the Public Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, and just started to go from there. And what is Wake Forest? Wake Forest is a university in North Carolina that actually has no biographical connection to Gertrude Hoffman whatsoever. The reason they have her archive is one of their retired theater professors found a trunk when he was visiting Hollywood in an antique store that had her papers in it. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, so much of her life sounds like something from a musical. It's just fabulous. So if that trunk had not been found by that professor, you would not have had the material you needed to write this book. No way. The trunk included a ton of diaries from when she was in the 1950s, really looking back on her early career. I don't think anyone would have known enough to reconstruct it without those. And as you say in the book, those diaries were her sort of reflections on her life. She wasn't writing an autobiography, but in a way she was providing you with the material you needed in order to write her biography. Absolutely. The diaries are written in a way that feels very much like they were for a future biographer. She liked to craft a star image. She was really good at it. And you can see that even in the kind of things that she was writing in her diaries. They were really fun to read once I figured out her handwriting. Oh, so these are all in longhand. Oh, wow. So even mm -hmm. more challenging. And she was also hoping that they would make a movie about her life or at least be included in some of the movies that were happening during that period where vaudeville was being fondly remembered. Right. I mean, in the 50s, you know, Singing in the Rain's the most obvious one, but there's the I Don't Care Girl, just a lot of nostalgia for that period. So she is trying to craft a story that will appeal to Hollywood. And she actually wrote, it was very touching and strange to read it, but she wrote a draft of a letter to Lucille Ball, trying to sort of pitch her life as something that Lucille Ball should star in as a biopic, saying, oh, I know we're really connected because you're really funny, but you had this first film career that was sort of sexy. And she was a showgirl. Yeah, yeah, that showgirl with a comedic flair. It makes sense looking back, but at the time, it seems just completely audacious for this forgotten vaudeville performer to be writing Lucille Ball in the mid-50s when she's one of the most famous people on the planet. That really told me something about her that I thought was super cool. Well, and it's sort of understandable because at one time she was one of the most famous people on the planet. So yeah. I think when you've been that, you don't lose that. You think, well, me and Lucy are two of the most famous people on the planet. Yeah, that's probably right. People that she had worked with, people that she had mentored, people that had been her rivals were being made into movies, as you said. Eva Tangway is the I Don't Care Girl. I think Mitzi Gaynor played her in that. The Dolly Sisters had a movie during that mm -hmm. period. So many of her contemporaries were being immortalized on celluloid, is the old expression they used to say. I can see why she had the desire to want to be remembered in that way. Absolutely. And to say nothing of Flo Ziegfeld or George M. Cohan, who are people who she worked with 
directly and frequently. Absolutely. I think that is one of the amazing things, especially for the subject matter of this podcast. She is a principal collaborator with the most important figures during what I call the genesis period of the Broadway musical. Oscar Hammerstein I, Ziegfeld, Cohan, the Schubert brothers, and that continues into the 1920s as well. That 40-year period that she is at the center of all that, you've convinced me how important she is to that. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. So let's go back to the beginning. Like many Broadway figures, she is from an immigrant family. Her mother is an Irish immigrant, but she's not from New York City. She starts her life in San Francisco. Yeah, San Francisco. This was maybe one of the biggest cultural surprises to me is realizing just how much of a theater town San Francisco was at the end of the 19th century. I mean, it stands to reason because a lot of the women who became very famous in the early 20th century as dancers, like Isadora Duncan, Ruth St. Dennis, come from California. But Hoffman lives right downtown, and her mom works as a costumer for the theatrical productions down there. So she's right in the thick of it from a very early age. I love that you expose us, at least in part, to the theater scene in San Francisco during that time, because as you say, it's mostly overlooked. And what you write in the book is that San Francisco's theatrical history remains obscure for the same reason as Gertrude Hoffman's. Both were too popular and too hybrid. What do you mean by that? Well, too popular meaning they appealed to mass audiences. This isn't a Eugene O'Neill play where you can pour over the language. It's about spectacular performance. And that's something that Gertrude Hoffman takes from San Francisco in the Victorian era all the way through the whole rest of her career. You know, you had operas with huge casts of supernumeraries and amazing costumes and amazing sets. It was all meant to be dazzling, but it's too hybrid. We don't really have a sense of the kind of theater they're making then because it's not the kind of theater that gets made so much now. I had to sort of reach for comparisons like The Nutcracker or Cirque du Soleil or America's Got Talent. There's not really anything front and center in American theater that's like that, although I do think there are scholars now who are thinking more about spectacle and how that's influenced the musical today. Maybe that take will change. Yes, I think so. My friend Misha Burson wrote a book about the history of theater in San Francisco in that period. She wrote that 20 years ago, but you made me want to go back and revisit her book as well, because it is such an interesting period. And as you say, it's sort of underrated because it didn't produce authors so much Mm -hmm. as it produced performers and stagers and people who could make theater without focusing on the story so much. Right. As you said, her mother is a costumer, so she's sort of in this theatrical milieu. You talk about her first memory of when she wanted to work in the theater, and she remembers it very vividly. What was that? She's seeing, I think we would call it a pantomime now called the Alibaba. And when she sees it, she thinks, oh, yes, I know how all those people should be put together. I can see how this works on stage. I mean, it's amazing that as a little girl, she's already understanding it, not in terms terms of wanting to be a star performer, get all the attention, but 
really thinking in terms of stage pictures. And that's something that I found really striking. I'm not used to seeing that in accounts of performers' childhoods. It's more about focusing on them rather than focusing on what they're seeing. So she's already thinking like a producer and a director and a choreographer mm -hmm. at that point, even as a little girl. Mm -hmm. I can identify with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> She will become a dancer at a very young age. I think she starts at 14. Where does she learn to dance? Where does she learn to perform? She learns to perform as part of, sometimes I call them pantomimes or pantomime ballets. Probably the best word because it gives a sense of the feeling behind it is spectacular extravaganza. These are large-scale performances. It might be built around an opera, but you have just huge numbers of people I mean, when we think about an extra as a spear carrier or something, it's really from this kind of model where you would have hundreds of people on stage marching in rows as part of the supporting vision behind the action. And she's one of those spear carrier girls. Daily we come from deep and dark blue sea And wisely we march through the world And with that fairies roaming to music of So she learns the kind of general choreography for that, learns it well enough to be kind of a line captain and teaching it to the other girls that she works with. And then working at the Tivoli, working at the Grand Opera House, she's just a sponge. She kind of soaks up everything that she sees going on. And as comes up later, it's a really good mimic. She only has to see something once and she's able to copy it. So it's basically on the job training. She gets immersed in this world and she just goes from there. In terms of these spectacular extravaganzas, as you call them, probably the most famous one in the history of the Broadway musical that people will know about is the Black Crook. And let us That's very representative of this kind of show that you're talking about. Absolutely. The Black Crook has all of the elements that are present in Gertrude Hoffman's spectacular extravaganzas. You have a lot of women relatively scantily clad for the time, so showing their legs off in tights. A lot of transformation scenes that would involve stage technology and a fairly cliched, usually fantasy or fairy tale type plot. Sort of melodramatic and overwrought in many ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sort of vaguely classical music, but really eclectic as well. Again, the writing's not Eugene O'Neill. The composition is meant to support what's going on on stage. It's not something you would listen to to again just for pleasure. And they might call it an opera, but it's not what we would think of as an opera today, at least overall. So her first job at 14 in 1895 is in Humpty Dumpty up to date, whatever the hell that was. <laughs> <laughs> and she's one of 200 ballet girls in the show, or at least the advertisements she applies for, they're looking for 200 ballet girls. I guess we can assume they achieved that. She moves from that, as you just told us, through the ranks of San Francisco theater to the Tivoli Opera House, which is more like vaudeville, would you say? Or Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a variety performance for sure. Yeah, early vaudeville. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And then to the Grand Opera House, again, which I think maybe sounds grander than it actually was. Spectacular and giant and immensely popular, but not presenting Grand Opera in the way that we think of it today. No, this is definitely something that's visually dazzling rather than technically or aesthetically perfect. She, throughout this, has started making a name for herself. And in fact, you tell us that she played the role of Toto, the Spanish dancer, in a production there and starts getting a lot of attention. In fact, Fred Belasco, the brother of David Belasco, says that's a girl worth watching. And Mm -hmm. so she's getting noticed. Yeah. And this is one of those times I always remember before I got to see Broadway shows in New York, when I would read little profiles where they would talk about, oh, somebody's breakout part, their little part where they really got noticed, like Kristen Chenoweth playing Sally and You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Mm -hmm. And being able to kind of connect with that and see how Gertrude Hoffman had the same kind of like, oh, it's just a little part, but she made sure that everybody noticed her when she was doing it and she really got a lot of attention. Yeah, and a famous person, famous actress, I think, remarks that she had a role in one show where all she had to do was run down the stairs and she rehearsed it over and over again until it was one of the highlights of the show. Yeah, that was Anita Luz who wrote Gentlemen prefer blondes. She was a California girl too. And her name at this period is not Gertrude Hoffman. She becomes known as Kitty Hayes. Right. She's named Catherine after her mother. There's definitely some confusion. Her mother gets divorced and they use a slightly different spelling of their name. But yeah, she is Kitty Hayes. She's a very popular chorus girl or ballet girl. They're not really chorus girls yet. When they do fundraisers for the Spanish-American War, she's very popular. And she gets to the point where she thinks, okay, this is as famous as I'm going to get if I stay in San Francisco. And she's still in her teens, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting. When we think about this period as we go into the 20s and the 30s, most of the chorus girls or chorus boys, as they would become known, were teenagers in Broadway shows. I talk about that with my students, and that's hard for them to understand how early adulthood started in this period. Right. I mean, first show at 14, she's really used to it by the time she's gone through a couple years. Yeah, exactly. So how does she get out of San Francisco? What happens to take her to the next step? Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be right back. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and even here in Seattle, warmer, sunnier days are on their way. So it's time to fuel up for them and meet your wellness goals with Factors No Prep, No Mess Meals. Thanks to Factors' menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, or my favorite, Vegetarian, Factors' fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. So what are you waiting for? Kickstart that new healthy routine with 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week so you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can crush those wellness goals with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make everyday delicious from breakfast to dessert with restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. With no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. 
With Factor, you enjoy effortless support for your lifestyle, choosing from six menu preferences that help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 as in Broadway Nation 50, and you'll get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Do it today. So how does she get out of San Francisco? What happens to take her to the next step? There is a touring production of a musical called The Night of the Fourth that is sort of proto-modern musical comedy. It's got some ragtime in it. And she is a performer in that when they come and do it in stock in the summertime. And she decides that she is going to go on tour with them when they leave and make their way back to New York and try for a Broadway debut. Involved in the show are two people who become really important in her life. Number one, the producer is Oscar Hammerstein the first. Mm-hmm. I assume she doesn't meet him at this point. She just is in his show. Right. I don't think they meet until well after she gets to New York. Right. But she is offered the chance to go to New York with the show. And correct me if I'm wrong, the musical director and composer of this show is her future husband, Max Hoffman. So Max Hoffman is not there when the show's performing in San Francisco. They basically pick him up on the way back in Minneapolis. But he is the music director for the show. And he and Kitty, Catherine Gertrude, Gertrude's her middle name, really hit it off. And after the show gets to New York is not a great success. They end up touring together. They end up getting married in Virginia. And he's 10 years older than she is. Yep. He is definitely the one who has the fame at this point. So who was Max Hoffman? Where does he come from? In a way, you're almost doing a co-biography of Max Hoffman in this book because he's so important in Gertrude Hoffman's life. Yeah, absolutely. Max Hoffman was Gertrude Hoffman's most faithful collaborator. Their careers were intertwined for almost their whole entire lives. And how long are they married? 63 years. Wow. Pretty amazing. Max Hoffman emigrates to the U.S. as a little kid. From where? like Prussia or Poland or one of those confusing places that changes countries multiple times. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at his passports at different periods is really interesting because you think like, oh, he comes from where? Poland? Prussia? Germany? What? Hmm. (laughs) But he ends up in Chicago where he says he's a kid piano player. He goes and plays piano in bar rooms and gets paid in beer. (laughs) But again, like with Gertrude Hoffman, kind of works his way up. He finds 
some of the African-American performers who are doing the most interesting work, like Williamson Walker. He hears performers doing ragtime compositions and then gets a job transcribing them so they can be sold in sheet music form. So he's really at the center of this sort of new music ragtime emerging out of just people who perform it to people who now can purchase it and buy it and play it. Right. He's one of the important intermediaries who gets it into a form where it can be sold. This is when he's working for Whitmark and Company, which is the big music publisher. That name is familiar to theater people because still today, if you rent one of the major musicals to do in your high school, you still might be renting it from the Tams Whitmark Company, hmm. which is some kind of way down the road lineage from those days. Yeah, that's interesting. And as you say, he becomes sort of infatuated with ragtime rhythms and has these job arranging popular songs in the new syncopated style. He becomes an orchestra leader during this period as well. So he's a very accomplished musician. Absolutely. He is an orchestra leader, music director. He writes the music for a bunch of shows for the Rogers Brothers. He has a substantial career in his own right. Another person we just don't know anything about, and yet he goes on to be the musical director for 14 Broadway musicals and wrote music for 12 of them. But no one ever discusses him <laughs> until today. <laughs> so how do he and Gertrude get together? What's the glue that brings them together? Well, they're working on the show together. And then when the show fizzles out, they end up doing little hops to different suburban places and other states where she performs and he does the music. I don't know if their romance occurred while they were still working on Night of the Fourth or if they were working together professionally and then got married. Not totally sure. But they are a career couple. They're sort of a package deal and even work together as part of a stock company where she is responsible for costumes and choreography and he is responsible for the music. So it's a showbiz marriage in that whether it's love at first sight or love at 19th sight, they're probably more in love with each other's talent than anything else. I think that's right. Together, they make a power couple or they have the potential to become and do become a power couple in the theater world. So A Night at the Fourth takes them to New York City in 1901, right as Times Square is really in its infancy, still called Longacre Square at that point. And you say Gertrude describes it as like a square in a country village. Mm-hmm. It's so cool thinking about the history of New York to pay attention to what's sort of the northernmost border in Manhattan where things are happening at different periods in its history. And yeah, around the turn of the century, Times Square, what, Longacre Square, was as far north as development had gone. Oscar Hammerstein I transforms a horse stable into his opera house. But there's room because it is that northernmost edge for theater new night spots, these kind of glamorous restaurants that I know you've talked about. And my favorite phrase that comes up at that time is people talking about going to a 
lobster palace for a hot bird and a cold bottle. Do you know that <laughs> phrase? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So good. What Sonny's talking about in uh, episode 63 and 64 of Broadway Nation, I start this series that I'm putting out a little more slowly than I anticipated, all about what I call the other Broadway, which is this whole world of nightclubs and restaurants and things that define Broadway as much as the Broadway shows do, really beginning in this period. Restaurants like Shanley's and Rector's were these lobster palaces. I encourage you to check out those episodes. But as you said, A Night of the Fourth flops, but that doesn't stop the Hoffmans or the soon-to-be Hoffmans. Yep. They work vaudeville in stock and then eventually in roof gardens, taking the summer to perform in those kind of outdoor theaters on the tops of buildings where you could get some air, go see a show that was more playful, more informal than something you would see in a theater during the standard theatrical season. So it's sort of like summer stock on the roof in Manhattan. Yep. Summer stock with more alcohol. <laughs> I want to do an episode about the roof gardens, and hopefully I'll have you back since you call this the age of the roof garden. Do you know how many roof gardens there were approximately? I don't off the top of my head. I would say, you know, at least a dozen. Mm -hmm. And some of them were very extensive. There was one that had a model windmill and a woman who dressed as a Dutch girl and a cow that you could get fresh milk from. So these were sort of like theme parks in a way. A little bit, yeah. It's a fascinating period. The reason they were on the roof was why? Because otherwise it would be too hot. There's no air conditioning and it would be too close and stuffy if you were doing the performances inside the theater. This was a way to keep the theater world going in the summertime, basically, at least in Manhattan. Absolutely. And it was also a celebration of that great new invention, the elevator. So you could take an elevator to the roof, be super modern, and then come out and see a show on a stage where you could still get the breezes. And drink and eat. So and it, was, eat. it was dinner theater in a way as well, at least cabaret. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure whether it was just Gertrude or whether both the Hoffmans get involved in a show called Punch, Judy, and Company. And she starts to bring her talent, which she's already used in the stock theaters for choreographing and staging things. You say she directed a chorus of 60 for that show and makes her the first woman credited for her dance direction of a Broadway show. Yeah, yeah. She was really... Uh... A trailblazer. So she's the first female choreographer on Broadway. At least it gets credit for it. It gets credit for it. I mean, Ada Overton Walker is definitely working right around the same time, but Hoffman is the first one who gets credit as a female dance director. Yeah. And I think you're absolutely right. Ada Overton Walker, the queen of the cakewalk, was a great choreographer and the dances in her shows got a lot of renown, but no one was credited as the choreographer of those shows. They just didn't give that credit at that point. This acclaim that she gets for staging the dances for Punch, Judy, and Company, she starts staging dances for other shows as well with some of the biggest stars of the era, 
One's called the Jersey Lily with Blanche Ring, who is another giant star that we don't talk about much today. And meanwhile, Max is working with the Rogers brothers, who are really big stars of the era. And Gertrude, just because I'm based in Seattle, I was interested that she plays a role in a show called Me, Him, and I, where she stages 24 dancers and plays a role called Seattle Sal. Yeah, if I'm remembering correctly, that's like a Gold Rush-themed musical, so she's supposed to be someone who's come down from Seattle to see the 49ers. You weave in the history of the theater of show business into this book. So interestingly, Times Square is physically taking shape. It's being basically torn down and reinvented block by block during this period. And at the same time, Gertrude Hoffman is staging more and more. She does more than a dozen shows over the next few years. And these are girl acts, as you call them. What is a girl act? A girl act is... Kind of the precursor of the precision dance of the Rockettes or the Taylor girls. This is a period when more chorus girls equated to more acclaim. There are articles in places like Variety where people are bemoaning the loss of the old sister act where there was just two women who danced in unison and looked really beautiful while they did it. Because instead now everyone's expecting dozens and dozens of girls on stage dancing together. Gertrude Hoffman, because of that experience back in San Francisco with the huge crowds of extras and the pantomime spectacular extravaganzas, she's really good at managing this supersized girl act that becomes really popular. She's not the only one doing this. There are people like Ned Weyburn, who is doing girl acts for the Ziegfeld Follies and other shows, but she's definitely arrival to him. As you say, she helps to develop the Girl Act, and the Girl Act is foundational to modern American popular performance. Talk a little bit more about that. In what way is it foundational? I think it's hard to imagine American musicals without a chorus line of a lot of identically dressed, beautiful women moving in unison. That seems to be really a building block for musicals, for variety shows, for cheerleaders. I mean, there's just so much of what we see in American popular performance that comes out of that idea that if having two women dressed in the same costume doing things together is good, having 12 women is better and having 200 women is even better than that. Yeah. And certainly we still see it in show business today, even in music videos, an echo of it at least. Yep. The Las Vegas show is a spinoff of this idea. Absolutely. And the Las Vegas show is one of the places where the flash act from vaudeville that Gertrude Hoffman's so important for, that's where it goes once vaudeville dies. So in the midst of all this activity around the middle of the decade, 1906, 1907, she starts to become a star. First, I guess, in vaudeville, where she has an act called Gertrude Hoffman and her Manhattan Girls. What do we know about that act? What do we think it was like? I think it was similar to what her vaudeville act was like as long as she did it, which was through about 1919, 1920. It's a combination of Hoffman doing celebrity imitations of people who were performers at the time that were well-known, like Eddie Foy Sr., Anna Held, George M. 
Sterling Cohan. The it, biggest stars of Broadway. Exactly. She did those individual imitations and then would move into a larger number with a chorus behind her that would be something more flashy, involving dancing, involving props, things like that. And often involving sexy girls in sexy costumes. Absolutely. Yep. Including herself. Including herself. In that act are some people who will later become famous. The Dolly Sisters are part of that act before they become the Dolly Sisters, really. And Charlotte Greenwood is in that act as well. Yeah, Charlotte Greenwood was the daughter of the woman who ran the apartment complex where the Hoffmans lived. And Max Hoffman ends up getting Charlotte Greenwood her first job on Broadway. Yeah, she works with them really early on, way before being Auntie Eller and doing her high kicks, but she tours with them down into Virginia, Kentucky, I think. Yeah, and the Dolly Sisters, Charlotte Greenwood in her unpublished memoir, says initially the Dolly Sisters couldn't dance for anything. They were really pretty and they had nice costumes, but they couldn't dance at all. And do you think Gertrude taught them to dance? Oh, could be. I mean, I know that a lot of their appeal just came from being really attractive people who wore outfits very nicely anyway when they were really famous. But yeah, I think it's likely. Yeah, and they must have had it or you don't become that famous Mm -hmm. without having something that makes people want to watch you, which is certainly what Gertrude Hoffman had. Talk about her work as a mimic or what we might call an impressionist comic. Was she like Rich Little or Marilyn Michaels or performers on Saturday Night Live? Is that the kind of caricature she's doing? Yeah, that is pretty much the same kind of imitation that she did. This was part of a larger trend at the time. Susan Glenn calls it the imitation craze. She's a performance historian. But some of the girl mimics of the time were people who imitated different accents or came over from England and tried to imitate people from different classes. And that was seen as more of an artistic type of mimicry. But Gertrude Hoffman did comic mimicry. Anna Held, who's Lauren Siegfeld's partner at the time was known for her expressive eyes. She has a song, I just can't make my eyes behave. Hoffman would, you know, start with just moving her eyes around and then moving them in really crazy ways all over the place or start with a very subtle French accent and then make it get completely ridiculous and cartoonish. So it was satire. Yeah, absolutely. And also, don't you think this is a response to something brand new in American culture, which is celebrity. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting about the popularity of mimics like Gertrude Hoffman is it lets these celebrities spread their fame even further than they possibly could from their own performances. So when you have George M. Cohan performing by himself, he can't get to as many audiences as all the other mimics who are doing their imitations of George M. Cohan too. This was new at the time, but then would continue because I know people like Carol Channing would help drag performers to do her better, would encourage them and like the fact that they were being imitated by other talented people. Right. And Mae West too. That's Mae West. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's part of the 
change that I mark in my book that I think is really interesting, this movement from performers who are really interested in having people imitate them as a way of spreading their celebrity. It was a way of making their reputation more coherent and more popular. But then there's sort of a response to that where some people say, no, I have the copyright. You can't imitate this or no, I'm too original. You can't copy me. So interesting because on one hand, it sort of proves you're a giant star because people are imitating you. I guess if you're less secure in that, maybe you worry about your act being stolen. Right. Or being made fun of. Yeah. That sort of goes with it in a way. So Anna Held will become not just someone that Gertrude imitates, but she'll become someone that Gertrude shares the stage with on the very next show. This is a Ziegfeld production, a Parisian model to star his wife. And Max Hoffman writes the music for this show and is the musical director for it. Right. And initially, they didn't think they'd be able to find a part for Gertrude, but they finally do. They give her a dance number and then they give her another dance number where she dresses in drag in a tuxedo and dances with Anna Held. They do a, what you call a scandalous tango in drag with Anna Held. Mm-hmm. What was so scandalous about it? I think just the physical contact. She says it was too naughty to be danced by a male and a female, so it had to be done by two women, which is sort of odd to us today to think about. But I guess in a way it felt safe. If it was two women doing it, it couldn't really be sexual in the way people thought at the time. Right fascinating, but it's her imitations that then make her a sensation in the show and sort of jump her into even more stardom. Right. She tells the story of being backstage when she's working in Parisian Model and is doing her imitations just for the amusement of other people in the cast. And she does her imitation of Anna Held. Other people in the cast are pretty scandalized. They think it's really mean. They think you shouldn't be mocking the leading lady. And I'm sure they're all worried about getting in trouble. Is really sure, sure. Yeah. But Anna Held is super canny. She hears it and she says, oh, yes, that's very good, but you should sing this other song of mine instead. She puts Hoffman doing her Anna Held imitation before the Anna Held performance. So we get the sort of parody version first and then the original after, which I think makes it less satirical and more like, okay, you see the funny copy, but now you get to see the original. So Anna Held creates a spot in her show or has Ziegfeld create a spot in her show for Gertrude Hoffman to sing her song and do her imitation of Anna Held. Yeah, that's right. And this song is probably the only song people know from Anna Held because it's the one that is used in the movie The Great Ziegfeld. It's delightful to be married, to be, 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 be married song. It's delightful to be married, to be, 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 be married with a house, a man, a family. You should be happy like a bumblebee, but it's better to be lonely, to be, 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 Day, oh, that's the life for me. It's the life for to be married. To be, 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 
And that's the song that Gertrude performs, which Anna Held had done in the first act of the show. And now the imitator is reprising it in act two. So is that story true? Do we know? I think there's several versions of it, right? Well, there's a biography of Anna Held that says it's probably not true because the person who performed in that role after Gertrude Hoffman left also said that that's how she was discovered. So I don't know if she borrowed that from Gertrude Hoffman or if it was just part of the publicity for the show. Who knows? Yeah, it could be they just recycled the publicity again when the new person went into the show. And so much of Anna Held's reputation is based on kind of fun outlandish stories to the bathing in milk and all of that. I like the stories even if they're not true. Well, Ziegfeld knew how to sell a show. Mm-hmm. Next, she works with one of the other greatest figures of this period, with George M. Cohan. She plays opposite him in his musical, The Honeymooners. But even in that show, they create a spot for her to do her imitations. Yep. I don't know that she imitated Cohan in that show, but certainly Cohan was one of the imitations that was a standard in her act, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, he had things that could be copied. You quote that some of the reviewers, when they saw her do these imitations in these shows or in her act, said that she was better than the people she was imitating were themselves. Right. And I think that's because she has to do the condensed version of the celebrity, right? I mean, George M. Cohan's not going to be 100 person cliched nothing else but George M. Cohan the whole entire time he's performing but if you're only doing it for a couple of minutes like Gertrude Hoffman does then you can be George M. Cohan firing on all cylinders exactly you get the best of the best in a way yeah so interesting because I don't think we currently have a stand-up comedian who does that kind of thing the way Rich Little did or Frank Gorshin or Sammy Davis Jr. used to do a lot of imitations and was really great at it As her stardom arises and she becomes renowned for these imitations, along with her dancing, and I think that's interesting that in her vaudeville act, she's alternating these comic imitations with some serious dancing at times. Mm -hmm. As you said before, not everybody likes being imitated. And apparently Eva Tangway, the great vaudeville star, the I don't care girl, is not happy that she's being imitated. And in fact, it's set up that she's going to imitate her in the same show on the same night. Right. They were on the same bill. Eva Tangway said that if Hoffman was going to be on the same bill with her, she couldn't do an imitation of her. Because, you know, Tangway's drawing card was her originality. She had so much energy. She wore wild costumes. There was no one else that was like her. So I guess it was diluting her brand or something. Gertrude Hoffman ends up skipping being on the bill and goes and does a show in Atlantic City instead and they have this feud back and forth in the newspapers where they're placing ads. Eva Tangway says, I'm the original and you couldn't copy me and Gertrude Hoffman says, I could beat you any day of the week. And I'm assuming their press agents are at the center of this as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is good for business. This was right around the time when Morris Guest took on the role is Hoffman's agent and he loved to create feuds and stage all kinds of things to get his star's names in the papers. But she actually gets into some more serious trouble with her imitation, not of a person, but of a show of The Merry Widow. And as you say, The Merry Widow is dominating Broadway in 1907. It's the biggest thing almost ever at that point. Yeah, this is a show that's come over from Europe and the copyright for it 
it is taken out by Henry Savage. He's the producer and he puts ads in the paper and says, anyone who does any imitations or any parodies of this has to get permission from me and to pay me a fee. This is not standard at the time. There have been all kinds of burlesques, full-length burlesques, and individual burlesques as part of vaudeville acts where people would do spoofs of whatever the newest show that had come out was. And this is at a time when that's what burlesque means. It means to make fun of whatever the newest thing is. And people like Weber and Fields, that's their whole thing. All of their shows included a burlesque of whatever the latest, newest thing so he's laying out this sort of challenge, knowing that this is what will happen if the show's a hit. Right. And Weber and Fields pay for permission to do a burlesque of The Merry Widow. But there are quite a few people who do spoofs of it in vaudeville. And Hoffman's is the most popular. It's pretty extensive. She does one by herself and then one with a partner and then kind of a ragtime riff on the Merry Widow waltz after that. I don't know if it's the length or if it's the acclaim she gets for it, but she gets sued by Savage. He wants to stop her from doing this performance. And of course that wouldn't happen if she weren't immensely popular. Absolutely. Yep. The copyright laws are very vague at this time. And also the idea which we have now that satire or parody is protected is not fully formed at this point, has not been codified into law. Right. Really, the thing that saves her is that you at this point cannot copyright a dance. You can't copyright the physical movements that people are doing on stage. And that's the thing that she borrows the most of. So they say, no, this is satiric. You can't copyright their postures. We're not going to keep her from doing this act. So she is acquitted, basically, or at least mm -hmm. the suit is dropped. Mm -hmm. But she does go to court on it. Fascinating. This then leads to probably the high point of her celebrity as a performer. And that's yes. with Salome. On the next episode, Sunny will share with us how Gertrude Hoffman electrified the nation with her scandalous dance of the Seven Veils, a routine that was so shocking that even in New York she got arrested for public indecency. Or was that a publicity stunt? Find out next week on Broadway Nation. the information about how you can become a patron of Broadway Nation. A donation of just $7 a month will not only keep Broadway Nation rolling along, it will also provide you with exclusive access to the complete unedited versions of many of the interviews that you hear on this podcast. And all patrons will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgments of your vital support for this podcast. To join, simply go to broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech that's broadwaynationpodcast.supercast.tech, or click the link in the show notes to this episode. Thank you in advance for your very generous support. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his help with editing this episode, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 